Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Optive Theology Podcast. My name is Andy Schmidt. I'm here with Clifton Ward, and, and we are doing a podcast on church history and kind of going all the way back to the apostles and the fathers and kind of just discussing okay, who, who were all these people, the fathers and people who um, came after the apostles and kind of started the church and started to develop doctrines and structures and things like that. Um, we're going to be talking about all of that and, and, and more in this podcast. But before we get into it, do you want to tell people about who you are and what you do and, and that sort of thing? Sure. That's great. First off, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to a conversation. Uh, but yeah, as you said, uh, my name's uh, Clifton Ward. I teach uh, historical theology at Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia. Uh, I've been here about three years. Um, and so I am the one that does all of the church history classes, right? So church history one, which is kind of the subject of what we would be talking about, which is early Christianity from the second century onwards, uh, early and medieval Christianity up to the Reformation and then church history too, which is Reformation and modern uh, Christianity. But my own kind of research and work and books and articles are, are mostly focused in on early Christianity from the second to say the sixth century up to Benedictine monasticism or something like that. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. And I think Maybe some people wonder, okay, well, what's why are we doing a podcast on church history? What's the significance of this? And I, I mean, kind of my thought going into this, and we had talked briefly before we started recording, was just that I think a lot of young Protestant evangelicals take for take for granted granted the rich history of the church, and we kind of just assume. You know, one of the one of the examples I brought up was that, like, we have a good kind of a decent or a good uh, theology of the Trinity. And yet in the early church, we didn't, they didn't have a theology of the Trinity. That, that word's obviously not found in the Bible. And so, you know, for a long time, they were trying to refute heresies of the Trinity, try to figure out exactly what the Trinity was, create a theology of it. And so now we're benefiting thousands of years later from that. And I think a lot of young Christians take for granted all of the good, rich historical theology that has happened. And so... Um, and so I think it's good for us to take a look back and figure out, okay, how, how did all this come to be and, and, um, what things should I, should I think more about as a, as a modern Protestant and, th and maybe be grateful for looking back on the history of the church. And so I, I guess we should just start with kind of talking about who were the apostles and, and who were the fathers and then kind of discussing their relationship with each other. Yeah. Yeah. Well, first, let me say as, as regards kind of that accurate summation that you have of the situation. I mean, that was that was something that I felt in grad school as a Reformed Protestant and um, asking the question, you know, what does uh, what does faithful study of scripture and faithful ministry look like? And uh, I started actually as a biblical scholar is, is what I was what I was going to do. But then I came to realize that one of the ways to understand the New Testament itself better was to read what the earliest Christians were saying about the New Testament, right? That, uh, that, that we don't have to get behind the pages of the New Testament, but we can understand the perspectives that the church had on those letters that weren't written to them, right? Like, so when you have the second century uh, reading the New Testament, they weren't actually texts written to them, but they were reading those texts because they 
understood them to say something about them. And so I recognized that, you know, reading um, the fathers, the early Christians would provide a way of understanding the New Testament better. And so that's that's essentially the way that I uh, that I got into this. And then then you can begin to answer some of the questions like you talk about, like like why the why the development of a doctrine of the Trinity and why uh, a recognition of Christology in just the way that we do. It was a, it was a question uh, of Christian identity as much as it was theology per se, that those or, or orthodoxy per se, that those weren't separate questions. It was a new community trying to answer the question what does the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus mean for us having received the Hebrew scriptures also as we have? How does that help us to understand this faith that we have? And so in doing that, you have this movement, as you said, from apostles to fathers. Um, fathers is essentially the term that was later used to apply to those Christian figures who essentially gave a an authoritative rendition of uh, the Christian faith for the people of their time, and that we should learn from those esteemed figures. So when we use the word fathers, that's that's essentially what we're talking about. Um, the apostles um, were the twelve figures that Jesus called to follow him in the pages of the Gospels, and in the development, for instance, of a uh, Christian canon, you know, what books are in the Christian New Testament, uh, this was a criteria for thinking about it, was that it was somehow related. It had an ap apostolicity, right? It was somehow related to the apostles that Jesus had called, who had listened to him tell them stories, who had shared about how he was related to the narrative of the Old Testament. And, uh, and therefore, this new Christian faith that we're following in light of his death and resurrection has to be somehow related to those stories and narratives that they share with us, right? So that would be the apostles, would be these who are called, the 12 in particular, that are called by Jesus. Um, and then later, of course, we have the apostle Paul, right? One untimely born, mm. one who's met on the road to Damascus and so on. For sure. And it was it's interesting. I was reading through Second Corinthians, and Paul refers to the other, some of the other apostles as super apostles or something mm. like that. Can you explain that? I just thought of that right now. But like, is he just kind of making a reference to people who are maybe he feels are like kind of above him, like within the group within the group of apostles? Yeah, and, sure. So I'm I'm not a biblical scholar. Uh, I haven't spent a lot of time. Uh, my colleague, Doctor Luke Irwin, would be much better to answer this question. Okay. Um, but but the way that I would see that would be um, that that's built into uh, to the issues within the church at Corinth that Paul's mm -hmm. talking about there, uh, such that there's a, a reference to those. And you'll notice, I mean, through the Corinthian letters, Paul is constantly uh, referring to himself as the least of the apostles. Right. Right. To to try and deflect from that category amongst the Corinthians. Mm -hmm. Right. That there is. There isn't such a thing as a super apostle that one should follow, right? So you get the, the narrative, you know, that one waters, one, uh, you oh, know, right. one does this, but God 
creates the growth, right? I, I wish that I had baptized none of you, right? Because because we're just creating factions by lifting up these super apostles. And so I think Paul's point there is that we shouldn't lift up super apostles, that, that we should recognize that all are pointing to Christ. And so I think that's part of why he's downplays his own uh, yeah. apostleship there. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so can you kind of break down the can you break down the different, or I guess not the difference, the relationship between the apostles and the fathers, the people that we see as as the fathers today? Yeah, I, I mean, I part of the difficulty with describing this is just the the very few bits of evidence, relatively speaking, that we have from the second century, which is where this transition would happen. Right? Um, we just you know, some of the texts that we have are very, are very much fragments. We have, uh, compared to what we see every in every, in our everyday lives, you know, post a Gutenberg printing press, right? We, we just have very few bits of evidence that have survived. And so part of what we do in historical theology is trying to come up with the most plausible situation. And, when we're talking about the relationship between apostles and fathers, what we really have is just a way we don't have any direct evidence that there is this kind of smooth transition from one to another, but rather the apostles are those who hand on the teaching of Jesus through the pages of the New Testament, right? And through word of mouth and oral teaching. And so then the first group, group is a is a loose term there, but the first texts that we see uh, after the the kind of canonical period would be uh, what we call the apostolic fathers, hmm. which is just a group of texts. Uh, the 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 largest figure that's usually associated with that is Ignatius of Antioch, hmm. and uh, and uh, they're just. Uh, letters that are occasional letters that are written at a time where we begin to see these leaders pointing back to the pages of the New Testament and the teachings of Christ as given by the apostles, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the transition from apostles to fathers would be this recognition that we're pointing back to the particular teaching of those figures who narrate to us the teachings of Jesus as he told it to them. Hmm. And so there's, there is, uh, am I right to say that there's, there is kind of a discipleship relationship between some of the, the fathers to the apostles that some of the fathers were following certain apostles during their ministry. And then is that, is that right to say? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we have, again, we, we can't draw lines directly because right. the evidence is just so few, but we have accounts of, for instance, Polycarp, being a, a disciple of uh, John. And we have Irenaeus in the later second century who's talking about this link between Polycarp and John. And so the the martyrdom of Polycarp, mm -hmm. right, would be one of these texts of the uh, apostolic fathers where, yeah. where we're looking at those who are now of an age, you know, Polycarp uh, of an age where he's reflecting on an entirety of life mm. given in uh, in service to uh, to Christ and reflecting on um, how that has uh, come about and how at the end of his life he couldn't deny Jesus 
uh, after all that he's done. And so, so we do have these accounts of those who were disciples of the apostles, uh, who now these authors are disciples of, mm-hmm. right? So, so we do see some of that, um, but we don't have, you know, bits of evidence where we see, you know, a letter from an apostle to, to somebody in particular of that second century group. Right. I think this transition is, is super interesting because you have the transition obviously from Jesus to the apostles at the beginning of acts where it's very clear. You guys are kind of the leaders go out, build the church, spread the gospel, whatever. And then, but that's from like Jesus. So I feel like that's pretty clear and (laughs) nobody kind of disputes that. Now you have that transition from the apostles to the fathers. How did this affect the church structure and how the church began to develop itself um, as you move further away from kind of the explicit objective teachings of Christ um, to you have the apostles who wrote scripture and definitely were inspired um, and were given that leadership by Jesus to now the fathers who are, you know, a generation removed from Jesus, but still believe how did the church start to develop their, there well, are, even even farther from Jesus, though, right? You know, I, I mean, sure. even more than a generation just just removed from Jesus. Oh, sure, right. right. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. then, how, how did? Yeah, I guess how did they start to develop and structure the local churches yeah. as local bodies, and maybe even connected to the larger body of Christ? Big question, but kind of take it wherever wherever you want to go. Yeah, with Yeah, no, I mean, <clears throat> there's, I, I suppose, there's so much that you could say. I do think, you know, kind of the narrative that you mentioned from. Um, from acts is really helpful in thinking about that because you begin to see uh, communities that devote themselves to the apostles teaching to the breaking of bread and to prayers, right? So you begin to see this kind of liturgical formation, even in these small communities Uh, in the letters of Paul, we recognize that there are churches that are meeting in houses you know, greet so-and-so and the and the church that meets in his house or her house. And so you have this recognition that you have leaders dispersed in each of these places, um, all presumably doing what Acts says in devoting themselves to apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, then, and then over time, you get the recognition that these, um, that, that you need more uh, groups, more communities, uh, more congregations, if we call them that, right, or gatherings, ecclesia, the term where we get the theological term ecclesiology, right, or the study of the church is just an assembly. Uh, So you have these assemblies of gathered believers who are recognizing that their story is somehow now intertwined with the story of Jesus and the story of Israel. And they're trying to figure out how this is. And they do that by devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching breaking bread and prayers. And then that grows. Clearly we see that in uh, the book of Acts, right? As you, as you call attention. And uh, we begin to recognize that somehow the leaders of each of these churches have to be, um, have to be connected somehow. And so Ignatius tells us in one of those apostolic fathers that you have this kind of threefold ministry of the bishop and the elders and the deacons mm. and that uh, that the bishop is essentially the one who has risen 
one of the elders who's risen to kind of um, connect various uh, congregations or assemblies in particular places, mm. right? And that um, that he uh, is the essentially the the representative of Christ in that particular place. There's a great book called The Original Bishops by uh, Alistair Sykes, mm. um, where he recognizes the way that the New Testament describes um, uh, government of the church is one that seems to be something like an elder deacon kind of uh, reflection. Um, and then it's the the genuine life realities of multiple congregations within single cities that begin, that begin to get bigger and bigger and more numerous that require some figure to connect them all, which becomes this singular, bishop that does that not that this bishop is something different than the elders but is the elder that then holds together all of these different congregations that is that's interesting to me because and tell me if i'm wrong here but as i read first second timothy and titus obviously the and even ephesians talks about the offices within the church you have the pastor you have the elder you have the um the deacons you have evangelists prophets and people interpret all that in different ways but Bishop is not one of them. Now, unless there's, unless I'm missing something in the Greek, it seems like that's kind of a, a new role that they developed after the apostles, that they're like, okay, we've got to connect all this stuff and potentially have some sort of governing authority even above particular elder boards within a particular local church. Is that kind of – was that kind of the logic behind it or, or how – how did they just create a whole new office? It just seems a little wild, you know? Yeah. So I don't think they would have narrated it as creating a new office. Okay. I think they would see, they would have seen something that was in keeping with what we have in the pages of the new Testament. Right. Mm -hmm. So okay. they, they would see that this was outlined. It was outlined in such a way in the new Testament that we're now taking those documents and trying to make sense of them in, in this kind of new situation, right? So you're right to call attention to uh, the elder overseer and the deacon. Uh, I, I wouldn't want to use the language of pastor as a particular office. Mm. I think pastor is the function of shepherding, right? Mm. So that, that the elders do pastoral ministry, right? Like they're called to be shepherds of this congregation. Um, and so, so I, so I, I'm fine using the language of pastor, but I, I wouldn't want that to, to somehow be different than elder. Right. Um, oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. 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 And I don't, I don't think you were saying that, but again, I want to be clear that, that that's how it's going. I, I think, so the Greek word that we have for overseer, as it is in like the letters uh, of Timothy and Titus there is uh, the Greek word episkopos, mm -hmm. which seems to be, and uh, Alistair Sykes makes this case in his book, seems to be the same thing as an elder, right? But somehow emphasizes kind of the administrative uh, giftings and role of that elder function. So an elder is not only one who pastors or shepherds, but also serves as administer and manager and gatherer, uh, carer of funds, all of these things. And so then when this develops later, um, you, you see the application of that coming to need to connect all of these 
churches together in one particular location and that that requires uh, not just an overseer of this congregation, but an overseer of the congregations within this city, right? Because they're, they are wanting to keep in line with what Paul says in Ephesians, right? There's one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one God overall. So they still see themselves as one church, just an expression of that church in Alexandria or an expression of that church yeah. in Rome or something like that. And so you need uh, this this figure to manage the connectivity of those mm-hmm. of those churches in those places. And so was there any sort of development of, of a dot? I mean, and maybe this gets into a little bit of the, the creeds and things like that. But even with mm-hmm. the, when the fathers were were kind of in the time of the fathers is is there any development of of doctrine? Because you talk about how there's different expressions of the one body. You know, you have mm-hmm. Corinth or um, or Ephesus or whatever it is, and they're all part of the same body. What? Because we, we today, obviously, we have Bibles today. So you know, and the Protestants, we we have Bibles, and we say, okay, this is kind of the thing that holds us together. And then you know, off of those Bibles, we develop. Uh, you know, confessions and doctrinal statements and whatnot. Were they doing something like that? They obviously didn't have the Bibles all nicely put together like we do, but right. um, <laughs> but they they have some of the letters and they have obviously the general understanding of the Christian faith. What are they doing to make sure that they are all believing generally in the same Jesus? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think what we talked about earlier is really helpful here because essentially what holds them together. Well, uh, let, let me back up just a little bit is there, there's, there's this constant recognition that uh, there are some things that we ought to say about the Christian faith. And there are other things that don't seem to be in keeping with the Christian faith and the Christian identity. And so it's the period of the second century where we have these kind of alternative viewpoints on what Christianity is that begin to develop. And so uh, we have uh, this uh, kind of philosophy and teaching that is developed around the figure of Marcion uh, in about the middle of the second century. He winds up in Rome about the year 144 and, uh, and, for all accounts, we think he, you know, was keeping in there, but he begins to teach things that kind of put the antennae up of people who are around there. And we know there was a, we know there was a, 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 a gathering of the church in Rome to kind of deal with Marcion. We don't know whether Marcion himself called it to try and defend himself or they did. Mm-hmm. Um, but essentially it's, it's decided that what he's teaching is not in keeping with the Christian narrative. And so they excommunicate him from the church, but he doesn't leave Rome and he, he, he kind of attracts his own following. Right. Mm -hmm. And so Marcion has all of these, these different ideas. Um, but, but in particular, Marcion wants to divorce the God of the old Testament Hebrew scriptures from the father of Jesus, as we see him related in the new Testament. Mm -hmm. And so there's this recognition that there has to be some kind of response. There has to be a way of saying 
that's not what our narrative is. Mm -hmm. This is what our narrative is. So we have all of these questions of competing narratives for what it means to be a Christian without the ability to say, turn in, you know, Galatians and read this, right? So Martin is this incredibly brilliant guy who, uh, who, essentially gets rid of everything in the New Testament that seems remotely Jewish because that God was very different than the father of Jesus. He reorders or gives us really our first ordering of Paul's letters together, putting Galatians at the very beginning rather than Romans, which kind of changes the way we understand that. Um, Because, you know, if you remember in Galatians, uh, Paul's writing and says, if anyone gives you another gospel other than the one I gave you, let them be anathema, right? right. Uh, if I give you a gospel that's different than the one I gave you before, then then I am I should be accursed. Don't believe me, right? right. Um, so Marcion kind of crafts this in such a way, uh, absent of an official canon, so to speak, that, that makes his case plausible. And so the question that those in the second century start to ask is, well, what does it mean to be apostolic, right? How do we know that what we're saying is in keeping with the message of the apostles as they were given it by Jesus and as they have related it, right? This is where we get our language of tradition because uh, the English word tradition just comes from the Latin traditio, which is the handing over of something, which we see in the pages of the New Testament. Paul himself says, I gave to you what I first received, right? right? There's this handing over of this message uh, that centers on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Um, and so that question, what is what does it mean to be apostolic, was answered uh, in different ways um, that all kind of come together to kind of give a Christian, yeah. I don't necessarily want to use the word strategy, but kind of a Christian way of articulating their identity in keeping with the apostles. Um, Irenaeus of Lyon in the middle, of, late, late middle second century uh, is essentially the one that gives us the most on these kinds of questions. But there's this idea of apostolic succession that as the yeah. apostles hand over this teaching, so then the bishops will hand over this teaching to those who come after them and and that each bishop and each in each city have been given the same message. How do you know that they've been given the same message? Well they're getting up and preaching every single you know, uh, Eucharistic service, the service of the word, they're getting up and preaching and you can test it, right? You can say, oh, well, the message in Constantinople is the same as the message in Alexandria or vice versa, right? Right. So there's this idea that it's not just the person, but the teaching that the person has in the office of the bishop. Um, Far and away, the most important of these strategies was what we would come to call the rule of faith, This comes almost directly from Irenaeus, but it's essentially a recognition that scripture for these earliest Christians wasn't a written text where they flip through and read it privately themselves, but it was more an oral, uh, an oral story. Uh, 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 The word that biblical scholars use is kerygma. Um, We might call it the rule of faith, but it's this um, this outline of the narrative of what will come to be scripture mm-hmm. that shows our place as Christians in this 
cosmic thing that God is doing. And so it's this kind of narration of creation, fall, incarnation, redemption, and consummation, right? That, that what God began with the creation has its ultimate fulfillment in the new heavens and the new earth and in Jesus's return to judge the living and the dead, right? Based on his words in the gospels. Um, now that, that gets much more developed later on, but even early on, we can see baptismal confessions that are kind of taking that framework, right? So, um, so it's the rule of faith that will develop into the later uh, creedal formulations that we might know, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, uh, the, the Nicene Creed as it was extended at Constantinople in the late fourth century. All of those take a narrative framework because of the rule of faith that was beginning to, ve- to develop in the second century. Um, and, then, and then a third way would be um, in the fourth century, kind of the, the articulation of a uh, a particular set of authoritative texts, mm. right? It moves from that kind of oral to written closed canon, right? We're not going to add to, to this particular uh, group of texts, right? Mm-hmm. And so all of those from the succession of the bishop's teaching, the rule of faith, and then the development of the canon over time from the second century on into the fourth century, all help the help Christians form their identity to say what we're saying and believing and confessing and teaching are in accordance with what the apostles believed and taught and confessed themselves. It's it's funny because that I mean that's literally the same thing that the church is still trying to do today, trying to, to keep in step with what the apostles taught. It's mm-hmm. I guess it makes sense. Obviously, that's the, what church history is. But, um, you know, they're talking about it in a similar way that we still talk about it today. The rule of faith, was this mm-hmm. written down or like was this like a written document that somehow was dispersed on into the church or was it kind of a word of mouth thing where we were like you know they're explaining this narrative to the churches kind of how how did that all work out like yeah so it's it's not it's not a written down thing i mean we have uh we have occasions in the literature of the second and third century where we have particular figures who say something uh, that that kind of places their belief in a narrative context that we might consider that sounds like the rule of faith, mm-hmm. but the rule of faith wasn't a singular document. Uh, it's more what we might think of it more like a plumb line, right? To know that you're kind of saying the things and some of it is gathered from, from, from different places, but it's essentially anytime someone would place their thought or teaching or confession or preaching within this narrative of Christian belief from creation all the way to what Jesus has done in his life, death, and resurrection Mm. is developing on this shared notion of, uh, of Christian belief and Christian identity. And so, so I would want to say something like, it seems to me that whatever it means to have a canon and whatever it means to be orthodox hmm. is actually inherent in that rule of faith itself in its basic form right mm-hmm. like like when the when when you're recognizing the texts that are inspired 
and should be should be recognized to be part of the canon, it's because they're in keeping with that story that gives identity to Christians, mm-hmm. right? And those that aren't in keeping with that, well, they're not the same kind of text, right? Mm-hmm. They might be read for profit, but they're not the same kind of text that gives that story. Mm-hmm. Or if we take Marcion, for instance, we can then say, well, Marcion's um, strict separation of the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament is not in keeping with this story that begins at creation and is climaxed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He's wanting to divorce those things. So this kind of narrative rendition that is summarized as the plot of Scripture, right? This this great uh, narrative um, helps us see how Christians can recognize what is or is not orthodox, what is or is not um, to be part of the canon. Mm-hmm. So, okay, I don't know my dates as well as you do, but what comes first then? Is it the the council in which they develop scriptural canon, or is it the Apostles' Creed? Wh- which one of those things comes first? Yeah, well, uh, uh it's complicated in, in the sense that in the sense that words that we use now uh, have to be recognized how they've been used. So I, I like to tell my students in historical theology that part of what I'm trying to do is to combat the Princess Bride fallacy, which is a great movie. Yeah. Uh, and one of my favorite lines is you keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. And so so, for instance, when we say Apostles Creed. We're talking about a particular version of this creed that's in 12 clauses, and we relate it back to the apostles and so on, right? Mm-hmm. But there's there's a, a chronological narrative behind that, right? So um, so I think the, the best way to say this would be to start – let's start with the creed, and then we'll go to the canon. Um, we have from different pieces of evidence that, um, that this kind of – rule of faith, this narrative that's to be believed that serves as kind of our Christian identity, uh, was originally in a creedal form in baptismal confessions, Mm. right? Such that um, those who are going for baptism would be asked questions. Do you believe, you know, in the Father? Do you believe in Jesus Christ, uh, our Lord? Those kinds of questions, right? course, I have more detail than that. Mm -hmm. And then they would respond because this was a marker of identification, right? Baptism was the entrance into this community. You're marking yourself out as a Christian. You're going to follow this way of life. So you ought to know that rule of faith, Mm -hmm. that narrative. And so we have evidence uh, of those baptismal formulas that were being used, for instance, in Rome in the third century. Originally, we had to piece them together from fourth century documents, right? So you're using something a hundred years later to yeah. try and figure out what they're doing in uh, in the third century. Um, but but within the third century, we have uh, sorry, within the fourth century, we have um, works from uh, Marcellus of Ancyra, and particularly a man named Rufinus has a commentary on the Apostles' Creed. Which, um, which we were kind of piecing together to see what these confessions were in Rome. Then there was just the discovery of a book called The Apostolic Traditions, hmm. uh, which goes back to a figure named Hippolytus of Rome, hmm. which kind of uh, 
confirms what those fourth century texts. So, so that was a second, third century text that was confirming what we had pulled out of later right. texts. Um, but it was written in a different way. So those later texts would say that these were things that people would would say, I believe in the Father, God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Uh, Hippolytus tells us that this was actually questions given to those who are about to be baptized. Do you believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, right? And then they would say, I do, and so on, right? So we see it kind of from a creedal standpoint. These are confessions that we believe, but also from a liturgical standpoint, how they might fit into what Christians were doing. Um, that uh, scholars call that the old Roman symbol, right? The, the, the thing that we've put together as the, the sign of the confession that they were making in third century Rome uh, for baptism. And it's that that um, they first call the Apostles' Creed because they thought that's, that this expressed the faith that came from the apostles. Uh, but it was only later that it is actually given in the form that you and I would know it as, right, sure. with 12. Like later they say, well, not only is it apostolic, but one of the clauses comes from from one of the 12 apostles, yeah. right? right? And so that, that doesn't happen until about the 8th century. Huh. So the form that we know the Apostles' Creed as comes from the 8th century, Um it didn't come from each apostle giving, you know, that that's a tradition that that wasn't accurate. But the the form that we have from the eighth century is not different than in content than that baptismal formulation that they had in the third and fourth century. Sure. So uh so so I would say then uh to summarize, the Apostles' Creed can date all the way back to baptismal confessions mm. in the 200s and 300s that we see in use in Rome. Right, 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 right. And, 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 oh, sorry, go ahead. My no, 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 that's okay. That's okay. I was just going to say, we, we, like, basically, so it can date all the way back to that point, but we didn't kind of structure it and develop it as we understand it today until the 8th century. We didn't put all the content into this nice, pretty Apostles' Creed that that kind of we read yeah so and and some of that can be seen for its use in liturgical practice yeah right so for instance i uh the the church that i attend will say the apostles creed every sunday yeah but we're not saying it as a baptismal confession yeah in that instance we're saying it as a confessional formulation right yeah in kind of the way that those fourth century texts were saying so that's part of the reason for its different formulation um, as it's written down and formulated, you want to give someone a, a way to remember it. And if you know there's 12 clauses, you can kind of remember it that way, right? So the formulation takes those different forms because of its particular use mm. within the liturgy. It's not simply a threefold baptismal confession, but it's now something to do for education purposes or to use for confession in a worship service or something like that. No, that's 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 really clarifying because obviously the way that I've always understood the Apostles' Creed is kind of in that you confess it at church to every Sunday to let everybody know, I guess, that we're doing mm-hmm. it communally, that we all believe this thing, but for it to also be kind of a Q&A before baptism or baptismal confession is a really interesting thing and I, it's it's 
I kind of like that, you know, <laughs> like I, sometimes yeah. I see baptisms these days and I'm like, I don't know if this person really believes like <laughs> what the Bible says. Mm-hmm. It's very like um, fluffy, but yeah, that's interesting. Um, so then where, so yeah. then when does the Bible be, Oh, go ahead. Do you have something to say about that? Oh, no, no, no. I was going to say you were about to go into Canon, I think. Yes. Right. Yeah. So yeah. when does the Bible g- get put together and Canon start being, cause this is one of the most man, like, and I feel like we could probably do an entire podcast just about this thing sure but uh kind of break this down for us a little bit yeah so i think you're right there's there's so much more we could say and i know you you've got other things that you want to talk about as well but but essentially one of the things that i would want to say is that the development of the canon follows a similar trajectory Mm -hmm. right it would be a mistake to say that there was a particular point in time where these documents were selected and others were uh, were refused or something along those lines. Um, and so the word that I will use with students to talk about it is a recognition of texts that were inspired and to be included in the canon, right? And so occasionally you get uh, what scholars will call canon lists, where you have certain texts that they believe to be part of the inspired canonical documents, right? So canon is is simply the word rule, right? So so you can see the similarity between the rule of faith and the yeah. canonical documents, right? Um, it's just this this measuring stick that we have of these texts that are going to narrate this this rule of our faith. And you have uh, essentially, I would ground it in those documents that are being used in worship from the earliest uh, in public worship. Because, you know, we have a text from Justin Martyr mm-hmm. in the mid second century, also in Rome, where he's talking about this is what happens when we go through our worship services. And uh, he, he goes through this uh, this preaching service and then he talks about uh, this Eucharistic service and what uh, the person who's presiding does. And it talks about we read from the memoirs of the apostles, mm-hmm. right? which for Justin meant the Gospels, right? So so even in the mid-2nd century, you have uh, gospel texts that are being read in worship services used in these kind of public settings. So you know that there are uh, texts that the church has recognized tell us about Jesus of Nazareth in a way that's fitting with the story uh, where he's the climax, Mm. right? That fits with creation, fall, now incarnation and redemption those are the things that we're we're learning about so so you have those and so then you have churches in disparate regions who are recognizing texts that they have to be in keeping with that rule of faith hmm. and we have evidence of texts that aren't in keeping with that right so we have this this uh wonderful letter to um Serapian that's talking about, hey, we found uh, we've been shown this gospel of Peter. Um, should we use this in our worship service? And they're told, well, if it's from Peter and it's a gospel, you sh- you should. <laughs> and so I've, I've not read it before, but you should use it. And so they start using it in their worship service. And then uh, and then the bishop gets a hold of it and says, wait a second, this isn't in keeping entirely with the narrative that we have. Let's not use this in our public worship anymore, but you should still read it. 
because it's profitable for your faith and learning. Hmm. And so um, the, the, the final marker in the development and recognition of the canon uh, would be um, a, a man by the name of Athanasius, yeah. who your hearers might know from fourth century debates and the Council of Nicaea and things like that. In the latter half of the fourth century, about the year 367, he writes a letter where he actually lists the text of the New Testament um, containing the documents that we still have as our New Testament. Um, but what's interesting is that Athanasius has uh, has categories for books that Christians have talked about from the second century onward, and he, he puts them in uh, canonical books, and he lists them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you know, all the way down. And then he says books that should be read uh, privately or for profit, and then he talks about books that should be rejected, right? Okay. Because they're, for instance, gospels that aren't in keeping with the canonical gospels and their narrative of the life of Jesus. Sure. Right? Uh, so these would be gospels that we might call Gnostic gospels yeah. or uh, the gospel of Thomas, which isn't really a gospel so much as a sayings book, right? Mm. Um, and so, you know, there's recognition that these texts look look something like that. And so it, it develops from here are the books that we're using in our worship services right. uh, until and it's not until the fourth century where it officially becomes kind of closed. Like this is what we recognize to be the books that narrate that rule of faith mm -hmm. in the way uh, that we have received it. From those who have gone before. Oh man, I have two questions about this. So one is, yep. what are some of the books in that in that uh, books you should read, but mm. aren't necessarily canon? Uh, yep. What 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 are some of those books? Yeah. So uh, so for for most of us uh, Reformed Protestants, those would be the same things that we might see as uh, deuterocanonical in uh, in. Um, in other canon lists, right? So our Catholic brothers and sisters or Orthodox brothers and sisters uh, would constantly be uh, in their small groups reading from the Wisdom of Solomon yeah. or Ecclesiasticus or something along these Hold lines, it. right? Um, uh, it's kind of yeah. um, texts that that narrate for them ways of understanding and and texts that are uh, that are probably being reflected on by the authors of the New Testament themselves, right? Mm -hmm. So wisdom of Solomon probably plays a role in Paul's thinking when he's writing the letter to the Romans and things like that. Um, so, but but there, there's not a similar way of recognizing the inspiration there. Um, but another one would be the Gospel of Peter that I was just talking about, oh, right? Yeah. This isn't in keeping with those. There's things in it that doesn't fit with that narration, mm. but nevertheless, we should read it for profit. Hmm. And one could even make the case that um, that sometimes if something is so not in keeping with what you have, it's nevertheless profitable for you because you continue to recognize what is apostolic and what isn't apostolic. Sure. Right. If, yeah, yeah no, that's, that's, and they, they call that the apocrypha, right? The, the Catholics. Sure. The, yeah. The yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Okay. And then my, my next question is, you know, as a kid, when I would think about 
<laughs> them choosing the books of the Bible. Generally in my head, I was just like, oh yeah, they probably all just like prayed about it. And then everybody <laughs> kind of got the same idea yeah. and they did. But yeah. what, what, what really, how did that, that council actually go? What, how did that proceed? Like, where did, how did they get to the point where they're like, okay, we've got all these different books here that are kind of being circulated. Some, and, and here's this narrative, this rule of faith. And so did they kind of, how did they, develop that that making sure that those books that we have in the new testament the 27 books in the new testament are the ones that do keep in in step with the apostolic teachings that came before yeah well it it's not the case that they were chosen at a council okay right but there was the recognition that um that that these are the books that we have been using in the course of articulating the rule of truth, mm-hmm. these are the books that we've been using in our preaching. And you have uh, evidence from those who have gone before that it should be limited in some way, right? So, for instance, when they're thinking about the Gospels that they use, right, you have an articulation as early as Irenaeus in the second century that's talking about uh, about ways of recognizing these four gospels and not any others, right? Mm-hmm. They were aware of other gospels that had been written, but they were trying to reflect on how these four gospels relate that narrative. And if these four gospels relate that narrative and this one says something that's different, then we can still read that for profit, but it's it's not inspired in the same way. They really believed, uh, as do I, that that God promised to uh, to to ensure and guide His church by the Spirit, mm. and the um, but they would see these documents that had been constantly used for a long period of time in churches for public worship, mm. and that became a way of recognizing this, right? So, um, so I mean, there were, there were lists before Athanasius's list, um, but it's really with Athanasius, who, remember, was a key figure mm-hmm. in fourth century debates. And because of that, Athanasius carried a bit of weight in the things, uh, in the things that he said. Mm-hmm. And so um, even I, I think it's from that point on, there's the recognition that um, – that we're not going to 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 find something that was in keeping with those that that narrative in that way. Mm-hmm. No, that's that's interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, there's like a million different directions, but I want to <laughs> I want to transition into the into the kind of away from the doctrine and mm-hmm. kind of the development of doctrine, the development of the Bible into kind of uh, into how the church actually functioned in local churches all across. I mean, you know, you have churches out in India, you have churches in Rome, you have churches all over at this point. And are they, you know, so I talked to a missionary who goes to India a lot and he Mm -hmm. was telling me how in India today, people still read the gospel of Thomas, even in, even Mm -hmm. though like in America, we don't, I don't know anybody who's reading the Gospel of Thomas who isn't like a scholar. They should be, they should yeah. be right. That's one of those profitable books. Yeah. Okay. So, well, yeah. here's my question. So then, how, how does how is Christianity even at this point in the first whatever 500 years of Christianity um, functioning 
differently on the basis of where they're geographically located. Now, this it's a, it's a weird question because if you go east, the way that Eastern religion is done looks a lot different today than the way that Western religion is done. And that's obviously been impacted by Christianity. And so I know that the, these distinctions didn't develop until later on as the West started to develop into what it was because of Christianity. But yeah. as they traveled east to the, to the you know, India and you have China and there's these rich, very historical religions that are very much disconnected from Christianity. They didn't have like Judaism over there or things like that. How did... How did the church – there must have been different – they must have faced different challenges in the East uh, than they would have faced here uh, – or not here, not in America, but in in uh, Rome or around more, around Judaism. So what uh, – how did things start to develop as they traveled further to the East? Yeah, well, um, I, I think one of the things that I would want to say, particularly if we're moving – past the fourth century is that you begin to get a reflection on the the need to speak together Hmm. in ways of talking about uh doctrine and teaching um but you you can nevertheless and this is a reality that we see even today that there are cultural expressions of that teaching and common uh, doctrine, common scripture that that can be found in in different places. Yeah. Right. Such that um, that that you can have uh, perhaps a different emphasis on uh, a particular book of the Bible and how that fits. And this is I, I mean, in many ways, it's similar to what was going on very early on. Right. You're, we, we have these letters from Paul. Uh, they weren't written to us, but they're somehow authoritative for us. Yeah. How do we make sense of them in our particular place and time? Right. And the cultural questions that they're having to uh, wrestle with are different. And so they find uh, a different. A different. Um, a different way of exercising faith, hope, and love in their particular location mm. that wasn't the case in, in others, right? Even, but, but even using the language of East and West is difficult in this period sure. because there's still this idea that the church is Catholic or universal, that this yeah. is the one church mm-hmm. who's, who's expressing itself in each of those locations. I mean, Nicaea and Constantinople, the first ecumenical councils, were predominantly made up of bishops who would be considered Eastern if we were to divide those, right? right. But it was nevertheless an ecumenical council because this is where the church was, sure. right? It was in... Uh, East and West, both. Sure. Right. So, so I, I think a lot of that can be accounted from just cultural expressions of that shared canon and teaching, uh, such that reading the Gospel of Thomas doesn't make one believe something differently. Right. This can this can be uh, be read profitably as such, so long as we recognize that the the Christian identity and narrative is found in those 
canonical texts. For sure. For sure. Yep. So, yeah, right. Because I guess things hadn't obviously hadn't developed in the way that they, they have today. And a lot of what we understand yep. as East and West is because of Christianity growing at the pace that it grew mm. in the first thousand years of or 2000, I guess the last 2000 years. So I do want to discuss a little bit because on the topic of Eastern and Western, and I know you had mentioned that the schism isn't necessarily one of the things that, that you are like extremely well studied in, but I think that it's a, you know, I don't know enough about it. And I think Mm. that it's an important, obviously it's an important, there's like a whole name for it. The the great schism. I mean, it's, it's an important part in church history. Um, Do you see, so do you want to explain a little bit about what the, the great schism was? And this is a a lot later on. We're moving further down the line in Mm -hmm. church history. Um, but explain a little bit about what the Great Schism was and and why it was significant um, to the to the church. Yeah, so we are moving a little further down the line because we're, what we're talking about now is an 11th century development. Yeah. So we we usually point to the year 1054 uh, as the the Great Schism, um, but it it's building upon. Uh, some of these developments that you've keyed in on, right? It's a recognition that uh, the church is Catholic or universal, Mm. and yet the church can be found in various places. It can be found uh, in Jerusalem. It can be found in Antioch or Alexandria or Constantinople. And it's the same church in each of those places, And of course, one of the issues that led to this schism or separation between the Eastern Church and the Western Church is the issue of um, papal supremacy, right? An issue of do we, is there one figure that speaks for the entirety of the church or do all of the bishops of all of these places have equal authority? Mm. Um, particularly, uh, particularly in five places, Alexandria, Antioch, Jerusalem, Rome, and Constantinople. Those, those were the places that people would look and you could allocate a jurisdiction of those bishops to all of the other churches. Right. Mm. And so, um, as debates go over the Trinity or Christology in the fifth and sixth century, uh, you begin to have influence from um, bishop figures who are also really good theologians, right? So people like Cyril of Alexandria uh, in uh, in Alexandria, or uh, Pope Leo in Rome, Hmm. right? Who's the Bishop of Rome. And one of Leo's works proves really influential in thinking about uh, Christology Hmm. um, in articulating what he believes to be Cyril's perspective earlier. And, uh, and so you have this Western Bishop who's speaking on behalf of the entirety. um, And that's really a simplified version of those things. But then you have other churches that are saying, well, that's not exactly what we think. Right. And uh, part of Leo's uh, or the argument that comes from this 
is that Leo is speaking authoritatively of those things that have gone before. So you have a Roman bishop who's doing that. And you begin to get this sense, uh, this growing sense that that Rome is somehow the first among equals huh. or even can speak above. And so uh, distance between the churches and communication become obstacles that they're having to, yeah. to deal with uh, as uh, Rome begins to try and settle disputes without talking uh, talking to those other bishops, right? Yeah. Part of that's just natural, right? I mean, it's just such a distance. Communication takes a long right. time. They're just dealing with with some of these things. But that so that that would be one thing is just uh is Rome overstepping its bounds? in terms of the authority that one bishop can have over the entirety. Can I ask right? a clarifying question? The, sure. Yeah. The, the, at this point, they're – I don't know. Jeez, there's a lot that I don't know. They're, at this point, they're bishops still. There's no pope or, or ha, it has – how. Well, so so we use those we use that language at, okay. at the same time because Pope just goes back to the Latin term for father, father. right? So so the Pope is the Bishop of Rome, but there's mm. also a Bishop of Alexandria, Bishop of Constantinople, gotcha. and ideally, in the way that it's been talked about, each of these bishops are 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 afforded the same amount of authority. They're a, a council, in other words, mm. similar to the way we would see elders functioning yeah. over one congregation. Mm. These are simply elders who have the jurisdiction over many congregations, mm. right? And so yeah. um and so even then there were some who would talk about Rome as being a first among equals. Right. But it always depends on whether you emphasize the first or you emphasize the equals. Right. <laughs> right. And right. so uh so so that's part of the difficulty here is that mm -hmm. that the Pope, which we tend to only use for those who are in Rome, right? Mm -hmm. And and now rightly so, because none of the none of the um uh, of our Eastern Orthodox brothers and sisters use the language of Pope, but they'll use the language of patriarch, yeah. which is, yeah. which is, is, is similar language, just mm -hmm. Latin and Greek. Right. And they don't, um, they recognize a first among, among the, the, there's a first among equals within the Eastern Orthodox church. right? That, that's true. But, but they will, they will constantly emphasize the equality over yeah, the first. For sure. Right. For sure. Uh, such. Yeah. Um, so, so that that becomes an issue of dispute, which we can even see today, right? As as you're articulating, um, another way of doing this, uh, of thinking about this, is language from the creed itself. It's at this time that we get uh, introductions to renditions of the creed that include clauses that aren't agreed on by all of the bishops, right? Mm -hmm. So, this is what we call the filioque controversy, um, which. Filioque is just the Latin phrase and the son, hmm. right? And so when we talk um, when we talk about the spirit proceeding uh, in our Trinitarian theology, does the spirit proceed from the father, like the son is generated from the father, or does the spirit proceed from the father and the son, filioque? Hmm. And those in the West wanted to include and the son, those in the East, uh, saw no reason for that in turn thought, thought that that diminished our understanding of the father as first in the order of the Trinity as the source of all things, so on and so mm -hmm. forth. Um, so this, this is a theological controversy right. that has issues um, 
politically as well, right, between uh, the bishops. And so uh, so that in and of uh, those issues kind of magnify uh, to the extent that you begin. And I, th- I, th- I think it's a, a helpful way of reflecting on the fact of what you were drawing attention to earlier in that you just have um, you, you have this different expression mm-hmm. of and different emphasis in Christianity that comes from. Uh, different uh, different cultures comes from different languages comes from different ways of describing that rule of faith that they held in common. Uh, so there's um, uh, God rest his soul. There was the great um, uh, Eastern Orthodox Bishop Callistus Ware, who's okay. passed away recently, um, and uh, he would use figures from uh, early Christianity. Um, when the church was still uh, universal and and before the schism to talk about the different ways uh, that you could think about Western expressions of Christianity and Eastern expressions of Christianity. And I think it's still helpful. It still has power for my students as we think about it. But, you know, you can see a difference in language, right? Those in the East would speak Greek, those in the West, uh, Latin, right? So he, he would point to Tertullian in the West, right? The Tertullian of Carthage yeah. and Clement of Alexandria uh, as kind of this Eastern mentality. So you've got Clement writing in Greek, uh, Tertullian writing in Latin, and um, the way they interacted with culture was different. Clement wanted to uh, to use the language of the Exodus from the Old Testament to talk about spoiling the Egyptians, right? Taking the treasures of the culture to apply them to our thing. Whereas uh, Tertullian wanted to challenge the culture, right? He wanted to say Christian reality is a challenge to the culture outside. We don't take from them, we overcome them, right? Mm -hmm. So his famous dictum, what has Jerusalem to do with Athens, right? (laughs) Um, So so there's a different perspective on what we're doing in the world, um, there was a different way of going about thinking about the Christian life. Mm. Um, he points out that for Clement, it was uh, meditation and contemplation about what our faith says to us. Mm. But for someone like uh, Tertullian, it was constructing formulas and creating new words to make sense of it, right? Mm. So, for instance, Tertullian's the first one to use the language of Trinity to describe uh, a doctrine of God. Um, in their occupations, Clement was a philosopher and Tertullian was a lawyer. So they're just, they're oh, just automatically yeah. thinking about different things. You've got legal terminology on the one hand, you've got kind of philosophical contemplative terminology on the other, uh, which meant that Clement as a philosopher was using the power of reason to think about mystery and contemplation whereas Tertullian was using his reason to think about what it means to live a Christian life in this world hmm. as such, right? And for, for Bishop Ware, uh, this became a way of articulating the differences hmm. between Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism as it develops in the late Middle Ages on into the modern day. Hmm. So he would say the East retains that kind of speculative character, Mm -hmm. right? That contemplative character, whereas the West reflects on how that, uh, how that mystery has a practical effect, how it makes a difference now, rather than just an intellectual contemplation. The East would, um, would emphasize 
worship and liturgy as the way of understanding those uh, speculative matters, whereas the West would emphasize um, legal matters, right? So you, so you would have issues of canon law that become really important in the West that aren't in the East. So there's a reason the Protestant Reformation happens only in the West and not in the East, right? Because it's uh, you think about issues of do you have to fast during Lent? Issues of can priests be celibate? Those are issues of scripture versus canon law in a way that the East just weren't facing uh, because of their emphasis on worship and liturgy. Um, even the way we talk about Christology, right? Yeah. How we understand Jesus. In the West, it's uh, Christ, uh, the sacrifice on our behalf. In the East, it's much more of an emphasis, not that they don't believe that, but it's more of an emphasis on Christ, the victor over death, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah. So um, both retain that perspective, but one emphasizes yeah. one over the other. Um, or the way we think about the application of Christ's work to our life. In the West, we talk about um, issues of salvation in the language of redemption yeah. and purchase and sacrifice. And in the East, they talk about it in terms of image developing into likeness or becoming like God, uh, issues of deification and theosis and things like that. Mm-hmm. And so then that trickles down, right? It trickles down to issues of uh, the Eucharist or communion, right? And so in the West, you have these uh, uh, strict articulations about how the bread is turned into into the body of Jesus and the wine is turned into the blood of Jesus. Mm. Um, and in the East, they're quite happy to just say this is a mystery, right? They probably have really similar beliefs, but the East has never seen fit to articulate it in the same way yeah. That the West has, yeah. um, or yeah. or Eastern Orthodoxy will will love to talk about healing, uh, about sin as a virus that that we need to be healed from. Whereas in the West, we talk much more about language of sacrifice and substitution and sin, mm-hmm. um, not so much as a uh, as a virus, but sin uh, in terms of guilt and judgment and so on and so yeah. forth. Right. All of those things are true, both East and West. And part of what we hope to see in our ministry is more ecumenical discussion, I I would think. But um, but there is nevertheless, I think, helpfully a different distinction, Mm -hmm. a different emphasis on both sides. No, that's fascinating, because as you did talk about that, I, you know, I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin, in the public school system, we didn't learn anything about the, we didn't learn anything really in general, but uh, especially about <laughs> about the history about the history of of how we think in the West um, mm. and and the way that you're just describing the Eastern way of thinking and the Western way of thinking as kind of law versus philosophy and kind kind of these different ways and how that proceeds through thousands of years, hundreds of years of of um, of develop of Christian theological development. And even in the West, you know, because of that development, now you have different political uh, philosophies, governmental structures, uh, Mm. universities, ways of thinking, how we develop all this stuff. And in the East, they're, they're doing their thing, which kind of seems, it seems very, not just geographically foreign to people in the West, but just the people in the East think differently than the people in the West, even to this day. That's obviously we have the internet and things have been passed um, through, through that, but there's just a really, it's really interesting to see how that has developed through history and how the church has played a pivotal role in that. 
Um, now it yeah. me like, it's, it's, I mean, it, it is a really broad brush that he's sure, painting sure. up there, but it's, but it is helpful in as a heuristic device for yeah. thinking about those things, recognizing that you can see examples of each mm-hmm. other on both sides. It's not like one talks about that to the exclusivity of the other, but right. I do think it's helpful in in thinking through some of the different distinctions. Mm-hmm. No, that's yeah. for sure. And I and when you were talking about the kind of disagreement of okay, did the spirit proceed from the father or the father and the son? It's interesting because I'm I I don't know which book I was reading. One of J.I. Packer's books. I'm reading like two of them or three of them at a time, so I can't figure out which one. But <laughs> In, in which he talks about the Holy Spirit proceeding from the, you know, from the Father and the Son. And that never crossed my mind that there would be another way to look at that. And I think a lot of people in the church today kind of take some of those Western thoughts for, for granted. And as we kind of talked in the beginning, they take those for granted and don't understand that there's a whole different theological perspective that um, in this case kind of helped split the church in in a way that is very significant historically. And I think a lot of people will think, well, why, why would they split the church for that reason? It's like, well, there's, there's deep theological consequences, whether positive or negative to, to these types of conversations on the spirit proceeding from the father or the father and the son. And, and, and it's, why I think it's very important to look back historically and to see what has happened because of that. I mean, we now live in a time where things are more fragmented than back then in the church because of the Reformation and Protestantism. And you have uh, you know 50,000 different expressions of Protestantism alone. And so things have kind of gone, gone in an interesting direction. One thing that I was going to ask you is, do you think that because of the Western, the more, and this is general, but the more law focused, terminology focused, maybe logic focused um, understanding of Christianity on the West, that it was, do you think because of that, it was almost inevitable that the Reformation would happen and then that you would have kind of all of these Protestant um, denominations because people in the West seem more focused on getting the exactitude of a theological perspective mm-hmm. rather than a more mystical or mystery focused uh, acceptance of something that seems a little bit contradictory. Yeah, that's an, that's an interesting way of framing it. I don't know that I have thought about it mm-hmm. particularly in that way. Um, I would want to be careful about using that as a way of articulating why something happened, because there are texts even from the Protestant Reformation and that we can see, um, for instance, Protestants being quite concerned about using the language of mystery and retaining those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Right. So so it, uh, it, it's not simply because of that. I, I mean, one way to think about it would be the going back earlier in the conversation and talking about um what is apostolic mm. and and how we get that through these kind of different wings of uh apostolic succession or tradition through the rule of truth the rule of faith and and how how that has been narrated and understood and the canon itself and uh and in one sense you could see the protestant reformation as uh something similar happening to the schism between the East and the West itself. And that is 
um, a, an articulation of of different emphases, mm. such that do you prioritize the thing that has been handed over to you, or do you prioritize the canon as such? Mm. Right, and so for the Protestant reformers, it was um, it was a uh, what was apostolic was what was handed on in the texts themselves, mm-hmm. and one one's goal was to 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 discover what those were in any particular place and time, and recognize that that tradition itself could be mistaken. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I, I mean, to your question, maybe that is coming from a particularly you know kind of legal juridical way of. Of getting down to to the disputes between it, um, but um, but there were. I, I mean, one of the things that makes the period that I study so foreign to Christians is that they that they they haven't been interested or take the time to go before the Protestant Reformation. Mm-hmm. But that's not something that characterized the reformers themselves, right? Yeah. The reformers thought that. Over the course of the Middle Ages, the church had left the the ap- apostolicity of itself, mm. right? And so they thought that what they were uh, recovering was, in fact, something that was similar to the earliest fathers mm. and using that that kind of language. Right. I think and so they wouldn't see themselves doing something new. For sure. And I think what a lot of younger, I mean, even just Protestants in general and more evangelical, maybe non-denominational Protestants might not actually know that Luther and Calvin, now tell me if I'm wrong. I know Calvin for sure. I think Luther is this way as well. They both kind of were, were cool with with infant baptism, they both kind of believe some form. They were definitely cool with infant baptism. That's right. Um, They, they were, they were, you know, I, I know there was a development of like consubstantiation, but they were vol- both kind of into transubstantiation. They ca- they held a lot of the similar Catholic views on a lot of things, but there were some other things that they broke away from. And this is this is getting to kind of maybe one of the last questions that I'll ask you is, as you've discussed the history of the church, just generally in this podcast, you've talked about the emphases that different uh, expressions of Christianity have taken on historically and how they might not necessarily not believe in something, but they just might not emphasize it. And whereas I, I bet you if I were to bring like some other, another scholar on or a different pastor or something, they might say, no, they're not emphasizing it. They believe in a different Christianity. I and mean, people go really hardcore on this type of stuff. I don't know where I stand on that yet, but um like with Luther and Calvin, who s- still held to certain beliefs that the Catholic Church held to, that now you you don't see as much in Protestant churches, especially evangelical non-denominational churches, um, of infant baptism and of uh, transubstantiation or consubstantiation. Are you, I guess, as we, I want to try to turn this into an application question, that mm-hmm. as you apply church history and, and understand it, what would you say is kind of is the most important application for people who are looking back at church history um, as it relates to uh, maybe being more graceful towards different expressions of Christianity? It sounds like that's kind of what you've been saying, maybe being more graceful or more more okay with the different emphases. Uh, um, and I think it's hard for people in the West to do, especially because we want to get the exact thing. Um, yeah. 
hopefully that question makes sense yeah no no it does uh so i'll deal with both of those in order talking about the reformers and then uh and then the application question um so i think the same thing is true that i was talking about with early christianity is that when we look at the reformers and the protestant reformation we have to remember that the protestant reformation just wasn't one thing but it's probably more accurate to talk about Protestant reformations, mm. right? Because Luther's reformation wasn't Calvin's reformation yeah. and neither of them were the same thing as the English reformation under Henry VIII, right? Like those are, those are different things. Um, Luther uh, did, I mean, we all know that it was the, the selling of indulgences and kind of the, the placing his congregation in Wittenberg under particular stress that kind of led to his initial uh, articulation, the 95 theses and so on. Mm -hmm. But it is true that, that Luther was not against many Catholic practices. He comes to articulate strong problems with the Catholic understanding of the Eucharist, right? Consubstantiation is not the same thing as transubstantiation. And so he, yeah. he, he didn't think that he thought like Catholics and Eastern Orthodox, that Christ was present in the Eucharist, yeah. but he are, he articulated it in a different way. Um, he comes to say, well, there aren't seven sacraments. There's just two because we want to emphasize God's voice in scripture over the way that things have developed. And so he would see problems in seeing certain sacraments, uh, certain actions of the church as sacraments themselves. If by talking about a sacrament, you meant the way that God gives grace to a human being, right? Um, so while they retained a spirit of wanting to reform the Catholic church, they nevertheless would see problems in Roman Catholicism. Right. Um, it seems to me that what we wouldn't want to say is that every problem necessarily means that someone's not a Christian. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and and there is still nonetheless a recognition that the things we talk about aren't always what everyone else is going to talk about, whether we call that a different emphasis or a distinction. Um it's possible to uh, to um, see those things as uh, similarities between reformers and uh, and Catholics, and nevertheless find Roman Catholicism, as is expressed at the Council of Trent, as problematic, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. As something that is not what seems to be in keeping with what has gone before. Mm -hmm. There's other issues that come in, though, speaking from a historical perspective, because uh, Roman Catholicism, as it was as it was expressed in the 20th century at the Second Vatican Council, mm -hmm. doesn't sound identical to uh, I, don't, I don't know what I did. Did I say Catholicism or did I say Protestantism? No, I think it's Catholicism. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Catholicism, as it was expressed in the 20th century at, at Vatican II, uh, doesn't use the same language that it used when it was the Council of Trent in the 16th century. 
such that even Roman Catholics today will call Protestants separated brothers and sisters Mm. who partake in some measure of the same spirit that we do. Is that from the Council of Trent or the Vatican? No, that's from Vatican II in the 1960s. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So so as they release a document called Lumen Gentium on the church, Mm -hmm. you have this, this, um, this recognition that while Protestants are separate from us and cannot take the Eucharist in the way that we take it. Nevertheless, those Protestants are separated brothers and sisters. Hmm. And separation is a bad thing, <laughs> yeah, right? Right, right? But separation doesn't, doesn't mean they're not brothers and sisters, hmm. right? And so, uh, so I wonder if there's a helpful move there. Hmm in recognizing that one can have brothers and sisters from which you are separated from and that the goal is to to move towards one another in reconciliation. I mean, that's the very spirit of redemption that, that we've been given, right? This ministry of reconciliation. Sometimes that reconciliation has to happen as a family discussion and not always with those who are outside. Mm. Um, and so... Um, so I, I think that was the spirit of the early Reformation, uh, even though it becomes something distinct and different because they're wanting to see uh, Scripture given a magisterial authority mm. um, rather than just a, a ministerial one. And, uh, and yet I think it's a spirit that, as you say, has come to characterize uh, certain certain ways that Protestants do things. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, I mean, uh, I mean, I'm a, a reformed Protestant. And so much of much of of the churches that I'm involved with are all practicing infant baptism. Yeah. Right. Whereas you're talking about non-denominational churches, which almost which very rarely will practice yeah. infant baptism. Right. And so so even talking about what would be in keeping with the reformers, mm-hmm. you know, that's 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 the same kind of question. And yeah. so in terms of application, I, I do think there's a recognition that we're still kind of asking those same questions about what is apostolic mm-hmm. And in in wanting to be apostolic, one of the things that we recognize is that uh, that this familial relationship with Christians all over the globe, with the communion of saints, as the Apostles' Creed says it, right, both yeah. um, chronologically and geographically, is very important, yeah. right? That that this is one faith, one Lord, one baptism. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, that that separation is a is a, a distinct thing that we should lament as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, that e- whether we talk about it in terms of uh, schism within the Western Church itself between Protestants and Catholics, or we talk about it as schism that affects West and East mm-hmm. between Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholics and Protestants. Um, that that schism itself is not something to be celebrated as such per se, mm. but it's it's something for which we should lament mm. and reflect on the ways that we can um, 
speak in unison what the apostolic faith actually is. And that's where that's where those creedal formulas help us. For sure, yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's really good and and helpful to think about because I've I've I grown I've grown up in the very the postmodern world where the big question that people my age and the millennials would ask is why can't everybody just get along? And that was and and I always would get frustrated with that, probably because my personality type is mostly like combative in a lot of ways. So I was like, what do you mean? We can't get along because we don't agree on like most things. That's why we can't get along. Um, and I do think that that's a really, really poor and it's going to be a frustrating way to look at the world for a lot of people. Why can't we all get along? Um, because there are very deep in, in the church, especially there's very deep theological differences and distinctions and and things. And they go, they go very deep to, to, to the way in which we view Christ and, and the gospels. And, um, yeah, like in doing this podcast for like five years now, I've talked to a bunch of different people from different (laughs) theological convictions. And that just seems to be the big, the big thing that keeps coming into my head is, is like, yeah, this is just a tension that you kind of just have to try your best to work out gracefully with other people who disagree with you while also not giving up what you think is true. And it's this weird tension that you go through as a Christian to be, you know, cause for me, I want to be like, yeah, Catholics and Eastern Orthodox, they're not Christians. Like what I think is Christianity, of course, that's incredibly arrogant in a lot of ways because I don't have all the, I don't have all the, the history or the theological understanding. I'm just one person. And so it, it does seem like the more, you know, when I read through church history and listen, you know, to different podcasts on it, the more I understand that there's been a lot of different people with a lot of different crazy ideas and different, different ideas and interesting ideas throughout the last 2000 years. Um, I mean, even like C.S. Lewis had some really interesting ideas and that was a hundred years ago or less than a hundred years ago. And yet we, we, these people were Christians. They, they believed in the gospel and I am sure that a lot of them will see in heaven. And it's just this tension and, and it feels uncomfortable for people in, in the West who want to have the exact answer. I want to know exactly who's a Christian and exactly who's, who's not a Christian, um, and it does feel a little bit postmodern, which makes me uncomfortable that I don't know exactly what it is. But, but I think that what you said is a good way. I mean, it's a good way of thinking through things. And in in light of the the whole story, the whole narrative left of the last two thousand years, it would be in some ways incredibly arrogant to just say, "Hey, the, the thing that I've come to in my twenty five years on this earth, that's the that is Christianity." You know, so it's it's an interesting thing. Um, do you have anything else that you kind of want to end with? I mean, you kind of just gave a bit of an application, um, but maybe as to the significance uh, in in reading the, the fathers and reading some of those secondary documents and understanding the history of the church as we wrap this thing up. Yeah, I mean, I, I always tell uh, my students in historical theology that that I do – what I do because I find it to be incredibly important for the church mm-hmm. that it that uh, that understanding history and the development of theology and the church is a way of living the Christian life wisely and understanding its documents in a helpful way and um, 
recognizing all the ways that Christians who've gone before us have attempted to make the text of the scriptures their own Mm -hmm. and recognizing that uh, the way of following Jesus is to love God with all of your heart and to love others more than yourself, to have the mind in you that was also in Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be taken advantage of, but humbled himself and took on the form of a man, obedient to the form of death, this kind of self-gift, self-sacrifice, and that the Gospels themselves pattern themselves that way. Take up your cross and follow me. And that Jesus himself tells us what that goal is, and that's that they may be one as you and I, Father, are one, that they may be one with us. And I think that's a helpful perspective with which to think through Christian history and the history of Christian theology uh, as a way of um, as a way of living this Christian life that is patterned after uh, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and for the sake of others and not just myself. Hmm. And uh, and I I like to think that reading these texts help me to do that. Um, they at least remind me that the things that we deal with are sometimes not really new, but that the questions we ask are sometimes new. Yeah. And so they give us a different perspective on some of these things. And usually that's what we need. Uh, you mentioned C.S. Lewis. He's got a great quote uh, bef- at the very beginning in a foreword to a translation of Athanasius's On the Incarnation. Hmm where he says, why should we read old books? Because they help us to ask different questions and solve different problems than what are our own. And then he said, you know, if we could read the books of the future, that would be just as good, but we just can't get to those. Mm -hmm. So we ought to read the books of the past. And, uh, and I think that's a really helpful kind of, uh, uh, position to take. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks for doing this podcast. It took us a couple tries to, to make it happen, but, um, I'm so glad we did. Yeah, this has been awesome. And, and so many things that we, we discussed, I think it'll be helpful for people, uh, to just think more clearly about the history of the church and and how we got to, to where we are today. Um, if you're listening to this and you like this, make sure you like subscribe, share this with your friends, give us a five-star rating and leave us a review and we'll see you guys in the next one. Goodbye.